Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here at Here We Still Stand. We live recorded yesterday um, with two guests who have been on before, Adam Morton and John Pless, on the German theologian Oswald Bayer, and we are hoping to get a few episodes out while we are here. And so we have con- uh, very fortunately been able to corral two guests for this episode um, into our hotel room. I would describe it, Mike, as a, a nice hotel room. Yeah, it's nicer than our houses. It's got a, a balcony, and we can see the uh, ocean. Yeah, the bay and the ocean. There's some boats up there. Some uh, are they seals or sea lions? They're seals. They are seals. Yeah. So we've got some some seals out there, and it's been great. And one of the people that I was privileged to be on a, a panel with earlier on good works, um, and who wrote a book I very much appreciated, and we uh, have been talking about hopefully using it in some capacity. Um, at the college happens to be here, um, as well as a fellow board member of the organization for which they work. And so I will let them briefly introduce themselves. But we're going to be talking especially about two things that go together. Um, First, a book called Vulnerable. I'm going to let the author introduce himself. I'm not going to say who it is yet. And then secondly, an organization called Let My People Go and what they do, what... um, and I think the story behind it is an interesting one of what's led them to do the work they do. So I'm going to let you guys pick. You can awkwardly look at each other, and then you can introduce yourself in whatever order you want. My name is Raleigh Sadler. That wasn't awkward at all. I was yeah. hoping for some awkward. <laughs> yeah. My name's Raleigh Sadler, and I founded and lead Let My People Go. And really, it came out of understanding that because of the finished work of Christ, I was completely free. And I'm like, okay, what's next? And... Next thing I know, I notice a need, and I'm like, wow, we can do something about this. And so I met Josh a little while ago. And he just you stole t- your introduction, Josh. I'll let you, let you tell, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah. yeah. My name is Josh Branham. I serve as a pastor in Jacksonville, Florida. I have the privilege of serving with Raleigh uh, for Let My People Go. And uh, yeah, Raleigh and I actually met when we were serving on a leadership council together with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And so... I uh, just started to hear more about the work and uh, his passion for uh, empowering the church to fight human trafficking. And so it just developed a budding friendship. Uh, and here we are. Yeah. And so Josh brings up especially what Let My People Go deals with and what the book Vulnerable deals with um, is going to be human trafficking. And that is an issue that you hear about in the news a lot. And we actually hear about in Milwaukee a lot. And a lot of it, Mike, has actually been down your way yeah, on like the south side by Creek. We're close enough to the highway that uh, I should keep my girls inside more than not yeah so it's uh it's something that throughout the country you will hear about in the news and we're looking forward um to talking about that and their work um against human trafficking but also um an interesting they're against it they are against okay i I said against right yeah we're definitely against it okay i wasn't sure where i was sitting uh during one of the presentations behind the booth um because my knee was getting a little sore so i sat for let my people go and I, i joked with uh josh and riley when they came back that i couldn't remember if they were for or against it so i hope i didn't Say anything wrong to anybody visiting, and they didn't seem to be too worried. I don't think they believed me. But uh, the story, um, invulnerable as well, uh, and what's behind it of how Raleigh got to this, as he mentioned with the finished work of Christ, is very interesting. Um, we have a, this has been an ecumenical weekend. We had Adam Morton from the ELCA and then uh, John Pless um, from the Missouri Senate to talk about uh, Oswald Bayer. And we have uh, Raleigh and Josh, are, are you the same denomination or mm-hmm. different same and that is uh sbc yeah we were southern baptist so we were on the we were on the cruise the dinner cruise the other day and i, I joked with raleigh that uh i said if anybody falls over you're going to be the most prepared because you're used to immersion and then he had a very good comeback <laughs> he was talking to a bunch of us lutherans there and he said well you guys are always saying remember your baptism and i'm the only one who can remember it so <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a, a good zinger. So with that being said, we'll uh, have our disclaimer. Mike, if you could read that, then we'll make our way to the free-for-all. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way.
Hello, we're back with our free-for-all, and the topic that we chose today, since uh, all of us except you, Wade, have, well, I suppose now in your adult life, you've lived, yeah. you have lived in different places, although you you lived overseas, so there's, there's something there, but uh, probably in our childhoods and our adult life, we lived in different parts of the country, and so we're going to choose our favorite place that we lived. And so, Wade, why don't you give us... As the least traveled? Well, yeah, but you traveled the longest distance because you really actually did live in the Netherlands, so... That's true. Uh, ben and Peter, if they're listening, are going to expect me to say Detroit, and then they're going to say I'm a Detroit homer. Um, I will say my heart will always be in Detroit, and I will always be a, a Detroiter. But favorite place, would you mentioned, Mike, uh, living abroad... Um, so basically where I have lived would be Detroit and then, uh, um, New Ulm, Minnesota, and then, uh, Mequon, Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and, uh, and then the Netherlands. And I would have to say out of those, um, I think my wife would agree. Netherlands, uh, Rotterdam was our favorite, <clears throat> kind of had the Rust Belt feel as far as it was a port city, industrial, working class. They would say, you know, you play in Amsterdam, you work in Rotterdam. And uh, my favorite thing about it, and you guys, your experience out east, you'll know with New York, was not driving the whole time I was there. Yeah. Um, I think uh, probably any place with a good public transportation system would be. But the other thing would be back when uh, when I could still bend my knee was I could bicycle everywhere. And it was not like we do bike lanes here in America where we just paint something on the road. Uh, protected bike lanes, um, between that and public transport, and uh, city feel, but it still wasn't... Uh, it, Rotterdam was interesting because it actually got firebombed or bombed by the Germans by accident. They surrendered in time, but the general command, German commander didn't call it in in time. <clears throat> so it's really the only city in the Netherlands that has skyscrapers. And so it's got this interesting mix of the old feel and then these very postmodern buildings, um, but public transport would win the day. So I think if I lived anywhere with good public transport that I felt safe on, um, that would win. All right. But otherwise, De I, Detroit. But. Yeah. So I was uh, born uh, Blackjack, Missouri, St. Louis, uh, Louis area. Then we were in Thousand Oaks, California, and then uh, Plymouth, Michigan, Detroit area. Then, of course, New All, Minnesota. And back to Mequon, Wisconsin. Back to Minnesota for 12 years. Oh, Vicar, you're in Houston, Texas. The Woodlands, Texas. And now Milwaukee. Which is why you have your great love for the Houston Astros, correct? I don't like the Houston Astros, because mostly because their uniforms in the 80s were disrespectful to the game. You know, I like the Houston Astros, because they're playing the Yankees. Yeah. I, I, I like I anybody who's playing the Yankees. No, yeah. Are you guys Yankees fans? No, not no, even definitely a not. Bit. Okay, good. Reds fan, I'm, I'm just not a fan of baseball. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then the Reds deliver. Yeah, yeah they, they definitely they give do. me what they I need. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my the three ones in my childhood, uh, California, Missouri, and Detroit, um, are equally dear to me. Um, I suppose I'm a Michigander, though. That probably would be where I'd feel most at home. Well, I surprisingly really like Minnesota. By the Minnesota. way, Michigander is one of the better state resident names, yeah, I think. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. It, it is just, pretty good. Because you wouldn't expect that to be nope. it. No. Nope. And it does. So I like it. Yeah, it's good. And that's that's really the tipping point. So that's why I liked uh, Michigan the best. Um, I surprisingly really like Minnesota, living there as an adult, not as a college student. But as an adult, it was we do miss Minnesota, even though it was wickedly cold and windy and very rural but minnesota people are they really are they're nicer to your face they're nicer uh it's just a yeah. it's clean it's a cleaner state you know what i didn't like about minnesota and i like i like the twin cities but uh everybody made eye contact with you and said hi <laughs> and that made me really uncomfortable when i first moved there so i got i guess not I thought, okay as I was a new yorker like, that is not yeah, okay. i was like do i know them like maybe i know them and i'm being rude so i got i got a story about that so um i was called to this rural town um, and it's one of those, like you could be in Texas where if you drive by, you could be 20 miles away, but you know, the car that's coming, you know, that's so-and-so and you have to, you're on the highway and you, you just go like this, you put up your hand and wave, which is fine. I kind of like that. And I was told that there was a previous pastor who was not outgoing and it just was his personality and, and didn't wave to people and that, that stuck with some people like 30 years later. So I'm like, all right, I'm waving to everybody my first day on the, on the job, you know? 
And so I'm walking down the street and I'm waving at the neighbor across the street and he doesn't wave back, but I got to do it, you know? So I keep waving, I keep waving, I keep waving. Um, and I'm about like three weeks into this gig and finally someone told me, you know, that guy's blind, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I, I do have a story about that. So, all right, Raleigh. So I was born in Texas. My parents met in a cowboy bar, got married two weeks later. Really? I came a couple of years later. So the marriage went fast, but, you know, you I took a little time. while. Yeah, I took my time to come into the world. Then we moved to Turkey. Then we moved to Cocoa Beach, Florida, where my dad retired from the Air Force. Then I lived in Florida basically my whole life, moved to Georgia after college. After I was there for a year, then moved to Louisville, Kentucky for seminary. Then to West Virginia to serve in a collegiate role. And after West Virginia, I moved to New York. And so, so I would say my favorite place of all those places has got to be New York. I was that kid who, on trips, I would make my parents wake me up when we went through a city. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whether it was big or small, I wanted to see the skyline. And so being in a place that's known for their skyline, and uh, it's just it's an epic thing. Like, yeah, I, I love it. I love it. And sometimes I get lost in it. I'll be walking down the street and I'll just see the Chrysler building or the Empire State building and just be like, I love it here. You know, it's, it's pretty uh, wild. The, uh, Mike, that would be a good free-for-all, by the way, that I thought of is uh, states that have the same name but directional differences that are the most different from each other. Hmm. I would have to think West Virginia and Virginia would be pretty different. Uh-huh. North Dakota, South Dakota, I picture being kind of the same. North Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina seems more... North. Transplants from the north, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The name fits. But West Virginia, Virginia got to be pretty different overall. Yeah, I mean, West Virginia seceded for a reason, right? Yeah. So that would be a good one. We just finished it, though. No, I think we go more in depth. You can go more in depth? Yeah. I, I got some North Dakota, South Dakota differences. It's nice. You know what two countries that were very different based on directional names before? West Germany, East Germany. That's quite the difference. Heard there was a wall even. Did they? They separated the two yeah, yeah it's <laughs> I didn't know apparently there were some uh, political differences huh. that should be interesting <laughs> so we've got uh detroit michigan new york what do you got for us Steph? yeah so i grew up outside of pensacola florida uh, and from listening to you guys apparently i'm the least traveled but uh so i spent my whole by the way though florida is a great honor because we have a game we play where whenever something crazy is in the news oh yeah we guess ohio or florida um, or Germany. Sometimes we throw in Germany. That makes sense. It's yeah. usually a fun game. Yeah. And I, so I would just had a conference down in Florida, and uh, I was presenting, and I was very disappointed. I Like, live PD cops was always down there. I didn't see a single, like, incident, but I was I was really hoping. Yeah. Being on live PD would be a great honor, in my view. <laughs> well, spend enough time in Florida, and you'll get there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Florida man is real. But... No, growing up outside of Pensacola, and uh, so my wife and I got married. We moved to a seminary in North Carolina and spent about seven years there in the Raleigh-Wake Forest area, and then went and served in uh, north of Nashville in Tennessee for about four years. And then we've been and uh, came back to Florida, just the other side. I've uh, been in Jacksonville for about three and a half years. And so for us, just a lot of it because of my background, I think that uh, – Tennessee, that north of Nashville and Clarksville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. was probably the best just because it had seasons. Mm-hmm. Like there was actually a summer and then a, a transition to fall. And you could actually notice that it really was fall and not just on the calendar. Mm-hmm. Like we're in fall now, yeah. but it's still 90 degrees outside, <laughs> uh, which is Jacksonville. So, right. Uh, right. but yeah, my kids enjoyed that. We'd actually had snow, which I hated uh, <laughs> growing up in Florida. But uh, no, that was that was probably the best uh, as far as location. Just the, uh, you know, it was, I'm from the south, and so I was comfortable with the southern culture there. But there was enough uh, transplants, you know, to the Nashville area. And yeah. So just you know, getting to to know different people from different parts of the country, it was really nice. Yeah, I've got some friends in North Carolina, and I have a buddy who's actually a well, it's not a denominational church, but he's Baptist, went to DTS and serves the church in Raleigh. And so when I've been down and visited, they are. They just can't come up with enough room to put all the people moving there, huh? It yeah. seems insane. With uh... Yeah, that's part of the reason I choose Tennessee over North Carolina. It was uh, RTP is uh, fast growing and just they're packing people in, which 
you know, the same is true for Tennessee. You know, yeah. all you guys from the north keep moving down south. I don't know what's up with that. It's winter. It's the snow you mentioned. And it's cheaper. Yeah. And, uh, and people not buying American cars. And we'll look you in the eye, though. So we expect you to talk to us. Yeah. We will wave. Yeah, I'm glad to know that. Yeah. And, uh, well, good. I think that covers our free-for-all. And with that, we can make our way to the main topic. us to our main topic, which uh, I'm excited to be able to, to talk with uh, Raleigh and Josh about, because it is something that, I think as much as it, as it is in the news, it's not um, something that a lot of people have a, a grasp on, um, it, what goes into this problem, um, what's fueling it, how to care for people um, who have experienced these issues. And so uh, to be able to talk about human trafficking, I think will be a value, very valuable thing. Um an interesting thing is we have two men here who have been driven to this work um, because of their faith, right? This is something that's not only mm-hmm. um, a project they're doing, but it's informed uh, by their faith in a faith that um, while uh, we may not be four Lutherans in here, we're four guys who um, are motivated by a doctrine of justification by grace <clears throat> through faith. So this is not social activism to score points with God. Um, this is not... Uh, motivated by any sort of legalism and so maybe if we could talk a little bit and maybe Raleigh if you could start a bit because I've I've talked to you a bit about it and um, it's just a, a fascinating story a lot of people don't um, take a route into uh, social work by contact with Lutheran theology uh, that's not usually the the story you uh, you hear um, and so maybe if you could unpack a little bit your route um, into this, if I recall, even this isn't something that's been on your radar for a long time before you started in it, but it, uh, how did you get to doing this work? Yeah, so it's very interesting. I remember being in seminary, and I was at a place where um, because I put such a primacy on the experience or the, re- the reception of my faith, I doubted my faith. I believed that I wasn't a Christian. And I'm here in seminary, right? right? And Mike was saying earlier that he's not sure you're a Christian, just so you know. <laughs> I know, and, and I agree. But here I am, and I am like kind of freaking out. And I would go to seminary professors and be like, I don't know, what do I need to do? Well, you need to repent of things. And so they'd give me a list, and I would, and it was just this really stressful season. And um, what was interesting was one of my historical theology professors assigned a, a project. We were to compare Luther's understanding of justification against justification and imputed righteousness against the Council of Trent's formulation. And everyone in the class had to write the paper. So when I got to the library, there were two slender volumes left. Those are the best kind of volumes. (laughs) And they were exactly and they were dusty and like just kind of like they were laying down like that's how many books had been there and they were all gone and now these books are just like laying down on the the metal bookshelf and i picked this one up and it was by a guy whose name at that time i could not pronounce but <laughs> garrett Ferdy and justification a matter of death and life was the title and i remember diving into it and my mind just blowing because for the first time i realized It's the finished work of Christ that saves me, not my reception of it. And he said something to the effect of, we live in a conditional world. Everything is if, then. If I mow this lawn, then I will get $20. But the gospel is because, therefore, because Christ has died for your sins, therefore, you are right with him. And for me, there was this almost Copernican shift, I realized that 
my faith has nothing to do with what I do, but what, everything with what Christ has done for me. And so now I start noticing people outside of myself. For so long, I would get focused on me, and I couldn't really even care about anybody else's issues because I was so scared that I was going to die and go to hell. Like It was this really weird thing that I was trapped in. But the more I talk to people, the more I realize people are there. And so when I realized that I was free, all of a sudden I started noticing my neighbor. I got a job at an orphanage where I started seeing vulnerability just explicitly before me. I, um, a couple of years after I graduated seminary, I got a job in West Virginia at a historically black college and university. And there I had these bishops and these pastors. And just for listeners who can't see Raleigh, um, I would define Raleigh as not black. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm historically historically white. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the thing about that is I'm being tutored and taught by these amazing men of God who not only proclaim the gospel, but they demonstrate it. And for me and my tradition at that stage, we would proclaim the gospel, but demonstrating it, that was hard for me because I remember, and I will own this, I remember being in seminary thinking, I hope to never talk about justice issues because that's what happens when you become liberal. Mm-hmm. I remember saying that, sure. right? And so I remember praising God that our school of social work was jettisoned from our campus during that season. I remember being so happy and all of a sudden the gospel becomes alive to me. It becomes very eye-opening and clear and all of a sudden I see my neighbor and I took students from the HBCU to a conference called Passion in Atlanta and they were talking about human trafficking. But then they were talking about how we create a demand for human trafficking. And Christine Kane, who graciously um, gave me a quote for for my book, she's an incredible abolitionist, works with an organization called A21 or A21. She, um, She was talking and someone asked her, if men consume pornography, is that creating a demand for human trafficking? And I was struck to the heart because though it wasn't pornography, I, I was watching just two days before I took these students, I was watching something that was sexually explicit and I was just broken mm-hmm. and I just repented and, and I just said, God, I am sorry. I, I'm sorry. I didn't know that my private sins had public ramifications. I didn't know that people were impacted because of my lust. I didn't know this. And immediately after, I had one of those moments where I was just like, God, this is weird. I feel like I'm supposed to do something. And I mean, I wear cardigans, right? I'm not going to kick down the door of a brothel. So I'm trying to figure out <laughs> what does it look like for me to fight human trafficking? And um, But you would if you could. I, I mean, would, tell, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. yeah I kick down a brothel for if, sure. If a door got kicked down and a guy in a cardigan were there, I would be terrified. Yeah, would. You know, because that's a guy with a, a lot of inner anger. Right. It'd right. be a, a mind twister like, like, like Mr. Rogers. Just, like this guy's yeah. either going to invite me to a frat party or he's gone nuts. The <laughs> anger that people that wear cardigans carry on a daily basis yeah. is immense. So you better watch out when you see like Mr. Rogers, you know he could take... That's why yep. people thought that he was a Marine Corps sniper because they're like, this man, he says he wants to be your neighbor, but I don't really trust my neighbors. But yeah, I mean, I tried to do something with it immediately. And what I tried to do was push it down because I felt convicted like I was supposed to do something and I pushed it down. And about a year later, I couldn't shake it. It just kept following me. It was like hounding me. People were calling me and saying... Or they were telling their friends, oh, Raleigh, he's going to be this abolitionist. He's going to do that. I'm like, no. And then right around that time, one of my best friends died of cancer. Uh, I was losing my job at the same time because they were getting rid of collegiate ministry through the, through the Baptists in West Virginia. And they were going in a new direction. And I think I was in a relationship that ended. And I was just kind of brought to an end of me. And I finally got to a point where I read this book called Death, the Final Enemy, I think it was called. And it basically said this, one day you will die. One day everyone will go to your funeral, they'll mourn you for five minutes and they'll move on. And then they'll die. And then people will move on from them. And it was oddly liberating. I realized I had an expiration date, so I'm like, what am I gonna do? So sold everything, moved to New York, and just started pulling the thread. And God opened doors. I was partnering with an organization. I started a panel discussion called Let My People Go. 
And then one thing led to another, and I just kept going. And so, yeah, I found, for me, in experiencing my vulnerability and my weakness and my limitations, it freed me to depend on Jesus like I'd never had. Being, being broken freed me to love others who are broken. And, and that's also, I think, what has kept me from diving into this theology of glory where I'm doing this work for the wrong reasons. And rather than, rather than doing that, I'm able to say, no, I suffer and I'm doing this through my vocation. Like, and I'm helping suffering people as I'm suffering. And I think that's what God's calling us to do. God, one of the things I argue in my book is that God motivates vulnerable people like you and I to love other vulnerable people by becoming vulnerable for us. Uh, so uh, maybe just briefly before we move on, to the organization as a whole. Um, Josh, how did you make your way into it? Yeah, well, yeah, as Raleigh and I uh, spoke several years ago, it's funny, God did something in my life uh, a few years back. I was serving as a student pastor and working with, so it's funny the similarities because I was working with college students and a lot of those college students uh, were very uh, involved in the indent movement. And so I didn't know anything about it. Uh, uh, okay, human trafficking, I get it, that's bad. We don't want that. Um, but other than that, how, how I could be involved or why I should be involved or all that. And, you know, the, just the fact of the matter is that most of us in the United States don't think that human trafficking is a problem here. Uh, and so just being oblivious to it. Uh, and so as I was working with these college students, I began to kind of do a little more research and find out, okay, wow, there's, there's a lot actually of human trafficking that takes place in the United States. And, uh, we were in Tennessee at the time. And so, I uh, started researching to see if there's any organizations around us and actually found one that was there in Nashville. And so I just kind of cold called this organization and asked them like, Hey, do you need people to come volunteer? And of course, when you call a nonprofit and ask if they need volunteers, they, they t tend to say yes. So, uh, from that point forward, just, uh, began to kind of get involved in that, that type of, and really the movement, uh, to, to end human trafficking and end slavery in, uh, in the United States and across the world. And, uh, uh, from that point, we moved to, to Jacksonville, and that was about the time that Raleigh and I started serving on this uh, leadership council together. And so uh, for me, it was really a place of, again, understanding the fullness of the gospel and that, you know, as Christ has, has, has saved us and transformed us, he's now empowered us to love the world the way that he does. And, you know, we don't love people. We don't love vulnerable people because we're trying to somehow earn God's love. But because we have been loved and been transformed, that should flow out of us. And, uh, you know... It, it's funny, kind of coming from our circles, when you start to talk about these social issues, you, you can get labeled a liberal real quick. Yeah, and yeah. so we're always real, eh, I don't know. But again, it, my journey was just more of a, man, if if, if I have been loved the way that I, that I know that I have been, you know, then that should, that should flow out of me. And it should flow to those that are uh, the most vulnerable in society. I mean, I know we're here at a, a Lutheran conference, but I'll quote James uh, because... <laughs> <laughs> You know, pure and undefiled religion, you know, before the father is this to, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, you know, and to keep yourself unstained from the world. And why widows and orphans? Because they were absolutely the most vulnerable right. and there was nothing that they could do right. for you. Uh, they couldn't pay you back. They were completely worthless and valueless in society. But those are the type of people you should love because that's who Christ loved. You know, when we were most vulnerable, as Raleigh said, Christ became vulnerable for us. And so just kind of wrestling with that in my own life and then seeing the journey that God took me on. To where, hey, I just happen to, you know, be a part of this leadership council with this guy who runs an organization that's fighting this, and at the same time, God's doing something in my own heart about it. And so it was really uh, an incredible uh, thing that the God did there. Now, have you ever kicked on a door? Uh, not a brothel, okay. uh, but yeah, you know, I'm a redneck from Florida, man. I've kicked a lot of doors down. <laughs> that's so. called Thursday, huh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Florida man. <laughs> yeah, um, and I guess whichever of you would like to take this up, and and maybe we can shift to what is human trafficking and the problem of it. But an interesting thing that just stuck in my ear, I've heard you say two terms that stuck in my ear. Um, first, an abolitionist. And I hear that and I think, oh, like Quakers in the 1850s. Um, but just that that's a term that can still be used today, I think is interesting. Uh, and then uh, secondly, um, what is human trafficking? For those who have heard it in the news, but how would you describe what is human trafficking and go wherever you want to go on that? Yeah, and just to butt in just one, when I think of human trafficking, I think we most say, oh, so little girls are snatched off the streets from their 
sidewalks. It's much more complicated than that, right? So you need to explain that to us, who people who are, are not really seeing vulnerability in the places that we should. So one of the things I really aimed to do in my book was describe what human trafficking is and kind of differentiate it from the myths of human trafficking. Because a lot of us will think, just like what you just articulated, right? Human trafficking is somebody who goes on vacation to Paris and she's with her friend and she goes to a flat, but they met a cute guy and a guy shows up, but then the guy doesn't hang out much. And then all of a sudden these people break into the flat they kidnap her and they take her to a brothel where she's forced to be sold to people working in a construction site. That's actually the plot line of Taken. That's a Hollywood movie, right? And a lot of people will take that and they'll be like, well, this is, this is human trafficking. How many people are kidnapped? Um, one stat says that those who are forced into trafficking through abduction are less than 1%. Other stats say less than 4%. So we have to look at this and say, though that can and does happen, it can and does happen. I have met people who have been kidnapped, but oftentimes people are groomed. Whether they're groomed for labor trafficking by going online and finding a job placement service that says, we'll get you a job doing this, this, and this, and they get there and they're forced to work with relatively low wages and they're beaten and they're um, treated really poorly and they're exploited for their labor or someone starts dating someone and they're like, you know what, this, this person really loves me, he cares for me, but all the while this person is complimenting this other person so that they can groom them to become what they need them to be. And maybe just briefly, when you say grooming, just so um, I mean, people. That's another term probably people have heard used um, in the news. And as someone who follows European news, you hear it used a lot more. Probably there. Um, I think people can get the sense somewhat from how you were describing. But what what do you mean by grooming? So, when someone grooms someone, they are, in a sense, stripping them of the things that protect them. Whether that's self-respect, whether that's uh, familial relationships, whether that's a church network, they're kind of isolating them and then they're kind of rebuilding them with the negative behaviors that they need or they're getting them to depend on them rather than to depend on themselves, other people, or God. They are ultimately becoming a God to them. And so, yes, when we see grooming, we always see it in the context of an exploited vulnerability. And I would argue that human trafficking, to answer that question, um, there are many definitions, but I think the most succinct definition that I argue in that book is that human trafficking, whether it's for sex, labor, or domestic servitude, or in developing nations, organ trafficking, human trafficking, regardless of how it is expressed, is the exploitation of vulnerability for commercial gain. And so someone is always gaining something. They are always um, benefiting and human trafficking happens when people use the means of force, fraud, and coercion. Um, when they use power and control to exploit someone with less power and less control. And we always see this. But the question that you raised earlier is, is it someone who's kidnapped? Well, oftentimes those who are trafficked know their exploiter. It's a family member. It's a boyfriend. It's someone in the community. It's not this stranger danger thing. This is a very dangerous narrative because now we're only protecting our kids from stranger danger or we're, I've, I've heard oftentimes people will say, well, we have human trafficking because we have a highway. That's implying that human trafficking means tr transport. It doesn't. A lot of people are trafficked in their neighborhoods. Can you be trafficked and transported? A hundred percent. Does it always happen though? No. And so that's one of the myths that we have to demystify is that you are taken and shipped. It can happen, but most people who are trafficked are people who are just vulnerable here and there's someone who's looking to benefit from that. And you mentioned, Josh, and you mentioned abolitionists, uh, Raleigh, but you mentioned slavery. And I would guess... <clears throat> At least 80% of Americans, it would be my, my guess, and we can bet on this if we want, but are you guys allowed to bet or no? 
Is that against? All right, Lutherans can bet, though. So me yeah. and you will bet. Um, <laughs> you bet for us, okay? <laughs> okay, vicariously. <laughs> and uh, that probably, definitely more than half of Americans, if they were to hear you say slavery in America, they would not believe in the least that there's slavery in America today. That's something in our past. We've progressed beyond that. Um, what do you what do you, what do you mean by slavery uh, when you use that term, and how does that appear in America today? Yeah, well, I think one of the big things too to kind of demystify uh, is a lot of times you talk about human trafficking, specifically with sex trafficking. You know, we're dealing with prostitution, and so people hear, well, that's not slavery; it's prostitution. You know, and the idea is that you know a lot of these women are are choosing this. Um, or, you know, like Raleigh said, you know, their, their pimp or whomever is, oh, well, they, they know that person, they can just leave, you know, and so that, that's not slavery. We think slavery is, you know, the Atlantic slave trade and uh, all that went on with you know, that. But uh, the biggest thing to remember is when we talk about grooming behaviors, it, it, it's manipulation. And it's, it's systematically, as, as Raleigh said, breaking someone down to the point where they're completely, really brainwashed and uh, completely vulnerable and dependent upon whoever their trafficker is. And so at that point, they are a slave. They are being exploited for commercial gain. Uh, they, uh, again, there may be fear of, you know, from coercion or, or, or what have you, but, you know, for a lot of these folks, it's uh, their identity is wrapped up in, in what the trafficker has developed for them. And so they, they're completely enslaved. They're completely at... Uh, the mercy, for a really bad way of phrasing it, but uh, of this trafficker and the power that they assert over them. And so when you think of it that way, how else would you define it? Yeah. I mean, that that is a person who is enslaved. And that raises a good question, right? Because when we talk about slavery and we talk about human trafficking, a lot of people will say, well, why don't they just get out? Why don't they just leave? Because Stockholm Syndrome or yeah. traumatic bonding is in place. You know, you share this intense emotional experience with your exploiter, and it mess it can mess you up. And also, like I had a friend of mine who was trafficked, and she said she would rather rather risk death than disobedience. Like they are master manipulators, and oftentimes when you use force or fraud or coercion, you can scare someone into not choosing what's best for them, but saying, "Okay, well, maybe I am wrong, or maybe." Yeah maybe the best thing I can do is just stay here. And yeah, I think oftentimes the reason that those who are victimized do not self-identify is because of these factors. Now, when you've mentioned um, human trafficking and the sex trade, um, but you also mentioned other aspects of, what, of reasons why people may be trafficked, um, maybe a two-pronged question, is the sex trade the primary reason we see trafficking in America today? Um, and maybe secondly, what are the, the other ways that people, or other things people are being trafficked for? So there was a um, UN, UN report in, I believe, 2006, and it was brilliant because they basically said that 68% of human trafficking, and this is impacting more than 40 million people in the world today, 60 8% of it is for forced labor, while 22% is for sex trafficking. However, of the $150 billion that is generated from this, $99 billion comes from sex trafficking, while $51 billion comes from labor trafficking. So though sex trafficking is more of an economic engine of the slave trade, you have labor trafficking, which is just, it's just everywhere. And if you see a need for something, if there's a need for anything, someone will be exploited to fill that need. I was talking with a friend who is a celebrity chef. He was on a show called Bar Rescue, which is one of my favorite guilt TV shows, <laughs> right? Like guilty pleasures. Like I love that show. And, um, he was on the first three seasons and I'm like on his podcast and, I've always wondered this, but I've never had the right person to talk to. So I'm sitting there talking to this chef, and I said, Brian, I don't, I don't even think I got to the question. He goes, so do you think people could be trafficked in restaurants? And I said, Well, and that's what Absolutely. I was going to ask is if, if this 
if an, if the the for labor issue is an issue in I think a lot of people would wonder well maybe the sex trade is an issue in America but being exploited for labor I think it'd be good for us to for listeners to understand how what are places how can this be happening even here well Dave Batson who started this organization in California called Not for Sale he had his mind blown he had his divine ruination if you will when he found out that this local South Asian restaurant that he ate at all the time was a hub for trafficking. He would notice that young girls would come in and then they would leave. He thought they were family members and he would ask about, hey, where is that server? Oh, well, she she moved away. Well, what was happening is they would come and they would kind of prepare them there and then they would send them out to different brothels around the state and around just the region and one day he was reading the paper and it blew his mind because one of the girls died they rolled her up in a carpet they were trying to put her into a van and someone was driving by the alley and they saw an arm fall out of the carpet it's like something you'd see in a movie so they called the police and they busted this human trafficking ring well batstone sitting there thinking this is where I've been eating. So it birthed in him a desire to do something because he realized for the first time, this is happening in my community. No matter where you live, whether it's a big city or a small town, you have vulnerable not people. Not Milwaukee, Wisconsin, though, right? Just to be clear. Definitely not <laughs> Milwaukee. There is no exploitation happening in Milwaukee, he said in a joking manner because <laughs> it's definitely happening there. But that's the thing, right? Like no matter where you are, it's happening if you have vulnerable people. Something that uh, I think is helpful about the book and the work you're doing, um, and the title of the book, and a term that you guys have used um, a number of times is vulnerable, and you've talked about Christ becoming vulnerable for us who are vulnerable. And so I think something that is helpful to talk about is, um, now there's all sorts of reasons that someone might be vulnerable, so I'm not asking you to list off a thousand things that might make people vulnerable, but especially in, let's say, in our American setting, and I understand that's a, a very diverse setting, regions are very different, but what are, what are some groups in our midst um, that, or what, what type of individuals may be um, most vulnerable? Well, it's interesting, right? Because I like that term, most vulnerable, because at the end of the day, I've had pastors tell me, well, you do know, Raleigh, we're all vulnerable. I'm like, yeah, of course we're all vulnerable. Just to be clear, I'm not vulnerable. <laughs> no, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Raleigh not just made a face that he was waiting to say something. He, he held himself back. So. Not at all. <laughs> and um, I think at the end of the day, we're all vulnerable, true. But some of us are more vulnerable than others, given our current either station in life or, I mean, we're all one medical emergency away from being exploited right after Vulnerable came out. I mean, the day after the release, the day after, I'm flying into Chicago to do the podcast and radio thing, tell people about the book. I finished Job. I so finished Job. You were doing the small-time podcast back then, I imagine. That was yeah. before the Let the Bird Fly. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. And I'm flying in. I finished Job, and I'm like, man, that was good. Then I turn on my phone, and I find out that my apartment had just burned down on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I am effectually homeless. And because I'm a sensitive guy, I made a joke about that in our panel today. <laughs> yes, you did. Sorry, but go ahead. And it was fantastic. Um, and, I, and it was a video panel, and so I'm laughing when he mentions this, and no one's going to understand. It's a total inside <laughs> joke. But, but for the next three months, I had nowhere to live because I couldn't get out of my lease. So I ended up living above above a um, food pantry working with those who are currently homeless. And here's the thing. When you're experiencing vulnerability, your eyes are open to vulnerable people. And then when you're working with vulnerable people, it's exposing your vulnerability. There's this cycle that's happening. And so for us, we have to recognize, yes, we're all vulnerable, but there are people that are more so, like those who are new immigrants, whether they have documentation or not, I know this is a politicized issue. Traffickers do not care. Well, and just to check, Mike, because I, I know, Riley, Riley, you've said you've had a 
some maybe from some conservative circles who object a little bit to the the immigrant thing with vulnerability. Um, Mike, you do a lot of work with vocation and neighbor. Uh, immigrant is neighbor. Well, if they're documented, I mean, you have to ask first. Oh, okay. Right, which I'd imagine the traffickers do. They're that's like, "Oh, Jeff, you have a that's document." That's in John's gospel. Right. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah. Has, so if, if anybody, four. If anybody's listening and they, they, it's a book of second opinions, right there. <laughs> yeah, Adam and I were talking earlier the other night, and we're like, "How can people be upset about something in your book?" And he mentioned, "Well, because it mentions immigration." And uh, so if anybody finds themselves like recoiling a bit at the uh, the mention of a uh, immigration or immigrant, I just encourage you to uh, read the Bible or the Good Samaritan. Right, like right. you have. There is a political issue at stake here. There is an ethnic issue here. There are a lot of contributing factors. Mm-hmm. But at the that, end of the day, there's a neighbor. But they're neighbors. Yeah. And who's your neighbor? It's that most vulnerable person in your path. And so it may be the person who's been in prison three times. It may be the, the kid who's grown up with a family member in prison. They're impacted. It may be the person who's grown up in cyclical poverty or grown up in, with cyclical emotional abuse or substance abuse. It could be ethnic enclaves in your community that aren't represented. It could be the low wage earner. It could be the working poor, the educated poor. It could be those with mental disabilities. It, it could be those with physical disabilities, women and children. I mean, there are so many people who a trafficker could target, but they could also target someone who may not fit any of those categories, but they're looking for love and acceptance. They're looking to belong. They're looking to finally feel good because they've been battling depression. Traffickers are like sharks in the water. A shark is a master at identifying vulnerability, and they do it by sensing blood. Once they find that thing that's emitting that blood, they destroy it. That is what a trafficker does. Well, and I think something that's interesting to me is you read more and more in the news of what the average American has in um, her or his bank account and how f- how close everyone is, not everyone, that's generalization, a lot of people are to homelessness, including people in McMansions mm-hmm. um, who have spread themselves thin. And I think it maybe helps us as we think about that to even ask ourselves, how far am I from economic vulnerability? And I think the fact is a lot of Americans if they don't realize it, are way closer to it than they might ever know. Um, Maybe if we can transition to kind of one last part to help connect things, and then um, before we close, we'll have to talk about the organization as a whole and how you're combating this since you're not kicking indoors in cardigans. Um, Although I think if you ran a commercial of you guys kicking indoors (laughs) in cardigans, you'd get donations, but that's just my take. But um, you mentioned... One of the moments where this sunk into you was someone connecting um, the media we consume and how how what an individual consumes, whether it be through their TV, on the computer, whatever it might be, the ways in life, um, you mentioned someone going to a restaurant, right, and, and then realizing that restaurant had um, human trafficking taking place there. The average American probably also isn't going to kick down doors, whether they're um, wearing cardigans or they're dressed like Lutherans. Um, <laughs> You know, one step from looking like Mike always says, I look like a homeless man, sorry. Um, but uh, what are some things, and I, I don't mean this in a way of guilting people, but what are some things that uh, the average American might be doing that uh, they don't realize could contribute to this? And on the flip side, what are some ways the average American can maybe help address this? You know, it's interesting because... Everything that we consume, whether it's our clothing, whether it's our entertainment, whether it's our food, um, our s- using our cell phones, everything that we use on a daily basis. Not brandy, though, right? I, I, I don't even I don't even. I've know had a little brandy for this brandy? episode. Yeah. Who is, who is she? Who is, who you guys wouldn't know, but I assume brandy doesn't hurt anybody. So Yeah, we don't know you, her. Some, I, I made a little bit of a noise drinking before, and you heard ice cubes, and so that was my unsanctified uh, Lutheranism, but... Uh, but so most of the stuff we consume besides brandy um, can lead to problems. But why don't you guys go ahead and jump in with that then? So everything that we consume has been touched by our neighbor. Everything. Your food didn't show up on your plate. Someone plated it. Someone grew it. Someone raised what has now become a delicious protein. But at one point it was some kind of animal. 
or a fish. We don't care about fish. <laughs> but, you know, it was one of those things. And so we often think, we just don't think about that. We don't think that there's coltan in our iPhones that most likely was mined in a conflict region at the hands of exploited labor. We're I, not. I definitely don't like thinking about that. Right. Because I like my phone. Because everything that we have is ultimately, we have to, we have to figure out everything that we use. We're either, in using it, we're either consuming suffering or purchasing freedom. And a lot of times we like to be blind to that. It's, you know, it's great to just kind of be aloof to all this stuff. But it's really hard to profess to a freedom that we don't understand, to say, yes, I want to see people set free, but I'm creating a demand for their exploitation. And until we address demand, I mean, that's why I talk about what I talk about in that book. It was very difficult for me to actually tell the full story of what I shared here. I remember talking to Chad Bird, who, um, have you let him fly? He's not yet, no. No. Chad is a big name. You go to something like this, yeah. and everybody's already, they're, they're grabbing Chad. So I was, Mike and I were like, well, who can we get? And I'm like, well, there's, there's, there's Raleigh Sadler. Yeah, you got us. Yeah. There's Josh. We'll ask <laughs> yeah. those guys. I mean, we're, I mean, yeah, we're, yeah. We're just around. We're just hanging out. You know, we're just commoners. We just want friends. But I bet you we could get a Baptist on here. But the thing about Chad that was amazing. We were really hoping to get the German guys that are here. I know. You'll get them, though. I believe in you. But I'm sitting there talking to Chad, and I'm like, I think I've kind of just not told the full truth about my calling to this. And he goes, What is it? And I told him, and he goes, You need to tell that story in your book. And I said, No. And he goes, No, you need to tell that story. I said, no. And he's like, no, like, it's better for you to tell that story because that's what happened. It's powerful. And I told the story, and I'm not going to lie. Like, it was one of those moments when I wrote it down. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to write a book on vulnerability, I have to be vulnerable. And I have to put it out there. And I hope that that helps men and women who struggle with pornography to know that that is not in that book to guilt you. That is not in that book to break you. That is not in that book to hurt you. We all struggle. The statistics are jarring. Everyone struggles and with among this. clergy even. Yes. I mean, the, the rate of pornographic movies rented during pastor com or like conventions is off the charts. Like it's ridiculous. Like there's, there's stats on it, but, um, but for me, it's one of those things where I want people to know that you are loved as you are. Christ lived, he died, he rose for you. And he has set you free because of what he has done. And you don't have to go back to that. It's never going to satisfy. But when you live in shame, you get stuck in a cycle, and it's a cycle that is not only exploitative to you, but it leads you to exploit your neighbor that you may not see, the neighbor on the other side of the screen. It leads you, um, when you're in this cycle of shame, you, you want to look better, and you want to dress better, so you, you buy the best-looking clothes for the cheapest amount. Who made those? Probably someone who was exploited in a developing nation. You, I mean, the food you buy, well, I got I to gotta have comfort food because I'm sad. So you're going through the drive-thru like a million times or what have you, or you're buying the, the cheapest food. Who do you think, how do you think, why do you think the overheads are so low? We should love the neighbor that we see, but we have to also love the neighbor that we don't see. And that's why we address demand. I think uh, something you mentioned in that are in there as well. Um, maybe just to, to hit a little bit more on pornography. I think that's something that, to me, pornography seems like the perfect American way to like do sex exploitation um, because you can kind of justify it from a capitalist framework of the people involved are being paid, supposedly, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not hurting anyone. There's a distance. It's not like ancient, the ancient Roman world where you might go watch people have sex live. <clears throat> um, it, uh, it's a very individual thing. It can be a private thing. Um, maybe just to hit 
very briefly with pornography, um, what about those who would say these are paid actors? Some of them are making a lot of money. Um, this is an industry like any other industry. Um, how does the human trafficking play into that? I mean, people should be able to do the math at this point, but but just maybe to drive home how that um, impacts human trafficking. <laughs> it's very funny how it's so easy to live with these misconceptions. Um, I once heard a pornographer speak and he said, no one is trafficked. Everyone has to sign, you know, a document saying that they're 18. And I'm like, yeah, like no one's ever lied saying that. And if you are in the commercial sex industry and you're under 18, that's human trafficking. But like, it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because I've had friends who almost every friend that was trafficked for sex, there was a pornographic video made of them and their pimp made of them in a uh, sex buyer or they're also known as Johns. Um, and we have to understand that a lot of this amateur pornography that's out there or revenge porn that's out there is it's, it's exploitative at best and oftentimes people are trafficked for it. Yep. And so, yeah. Well, and think about the fact that most pornography is free now. So do you think the pornographers are making this out of the goodness of their heart for the masses to be able to experience, they're making money somehow. Uh, they're, they're, they're exploiting people in order to make gains. And so the fact that it's out there and it's free, uh, you know, we just have to consider the fact that, oh, well, uh, I, I guess, you know, no, maybe the act, how are the actors getting paid? And, and how do you know that? And I think that goes back to, I mean, Obviously, this is an aside from the blatant sinfulness. I'm guessing sinfulness. it's not like YouTube where they do like ads in the middle of it or something. Then I guess. <laughs> well, that's not one I can speak to, yeah. but uh, uh, Raleigh, I don't know. But uh, no, I think that just considering the fact that you know, obviously the the blatant sinfulness uh, of pornography, but for those that would participate in it, just recognizing that uh, these are people that are being exploited, and while we may want to say, well, they're paid or whatnot, we don't know that. And then if you just like you said earlier, just do the math and recognize that all the money that pornography makes, uh, and I would say kind of back to some of the earlier questions talking about human trafficking and what people can do and all those types of things, but just recognizing that if there is an opportunity to make money, then someone in a more a position of power is going to exploit someone in, in, a, in a more vulnerable position in order to, to make it. And I think, like you said, uh, pornography is kind of the perfect American way to do that. Um, but there's so many other ways. And as far as how we can respond to that, just recognizing that when people are in a position of, of desperation, uh, you can get them to do anything. Yeah. And, and that's where the trafficking comes in. That's where traffickers, as, as Raleigh said, are their master manipulators and are able to come into wherever people are, whatever their vulnerability is, whether it's economic or, uh, you know, boyfriending is something emotional. where, yeah, the emotional attachment, because you have, uh, the number of people that are trafficked out of foster care, is ridiculous because you have this idea of, you know, I'm not loved, I'm not valued, I have no family. And so someone comes in, makes those initial connections. And then, oh, if you love me, by the way, you'll help us make some money on the side here by doing these types of things. And so for, for those of us that want to know what we can do, I, we've got to be willing to get messy yeah. and, and not live in our Christian comfort and step back and just think that those problems don't really exist because I don't see them. It goes back to the, the, the James reference, the widows and orphans. You know, we got to be willing to find where the most vulnerable are. You only are. get three James rep okay, references that, in I episode. I think that's three. <laughs> that's two. Is that two? So I get one more. more? Yeah. Okay, I'll throw faith without works in later. <laughs> uh, but really, I mean, it's, it's being will Where are the most vulnerable? I've got to step out of my myopia and open my eyes to the needs in the community around us, just as Christ did for us, yeah. like stepping into our actual need, yeah. not just, you know, certain things to kind of make us feel good and you know, I, we like to serve, but, you know, from a distance, you know, I like, I like to be clean. And uh, if we're really going to address human trafficking, you've got to be willing to step into the mess and uh, and really engage with where people are. And one of the things I like about the book and what you guys are doing is I think um, we may have Baptists and Lutherans in this room, but we have four people from conservative denominations um, that are probably largely made up of people who would lean politically conservative as well. And I think among those people, you would get, at least on your face, uh, an almost universal condemnation of pornography. But I also think you don't get many who think about the next step, 
of loving the people victimized by it. And I think we can do something probably in that regard, like sometimes happens with poverty where whether you want to admit it or not, we make moral judgments often about the poor, right? They wouldn't be poor if they just did this or Get that. A job. And I think um, that's something that is powerful. And I think it's something that goes back to what you both had mentioned earlier about the gospel. Um, and what a, uh, rather than um, kind of freeing us from our neighbor, as was the fear of some, you know, at the Middle Ages with the Reformation, um, what justification by grace through faith can actually empower um, is to see your neighbor in a way, and even if you have to say, yep, there's a ton of sin involved, there's no way to dig out of this hole without getting messy, um, to say my neighbor is in that hole, and uh, my neighbor is needs me, and, and maybe this is the work God has prepared in advance for me to do, which it seems like for both of you that's uh, been the case. Maybe I think we'd be remiss if we let you guys go without giving you a little bit here at the end to talk about uh, what you're on the board for. Um, you know, you're not kicking down doors. We've established that. Yeah. But what is, uh, yeah, how is, uh, how is Let My People Go um, addressing this issue? Well, one thing that I do want to bring up before we, before I get there is Let My People, well, actually, Let My People Go is addressing this issue in a way that we are working with churches and helping them create a congregational approach where everyone in the congregation is equipped to do something. We help them build a justice ministry team whereby they can address the needs in their community. Um, We work with the pastoral team to talk about these sensitive issues. We help them create a vulnerability response plan so that they know exactly what to do when something happens. we help them think through what does it look like to actually include people rather than just to create a program where you can sequester vulnerable people. How can you include them into your congregation? But not only do we do this from a congregational standpoint, we do it from a collaborative one where you're partnering with the local stakeholders in your community, those who are in local law enforcement, local social services, local nonprofits. And so, yes, there's a congregational approach a collaborative approach, but we also want people to do this with a gospel motive. Because here's the deal. If you're doing this because you feel like you have to, you're doing it wrong. But if you know that you are free and you get to do this, and you don't have to do this perfectly because Christ was perfect in your place, if you can do that, then you can allow the law to expose your need and your lack of doing this, but then allow the gospel to show you that you are okay because of Christ, and now you're just free to love your community and to find those who are in need and just to be there and to know them and to be that community that they needed when they were exploited. Yeah, I think that's, for me, you know, as a pastor especially, knowing that, you know, the work of Let My People Go is is to come in and help churches uh, minister to those areas in their communities that are most vulnerable to get there before the traffickers do, you know, to recognize there are people that, whether it's, you know, financially, emotionally, whatever that vulnerability is that it, we can take the gospel into that situation. You know, we can love people. We can actually love our neighbor, which is everyone, as we talked about, you know, as ourselves. And, and that it, one's elsewhere besides just James. So we'll, yeah, we'll allow that, it. yeah, I think that's a couple of places, right? Uh, but no, really, uh, stepping into those different places and, and loving people well and, and, and loving them in Christ's name and sharing you know, the gospel in word and deed and recognizing that you know, the gospel is transformative. And so for me, that, that's you know, why I enjoy being a part of uh, Let My People Go is because it's really equipping the churches you know, to do that, as, as, as Raleigh said, much better than I can, but uh, both congregationally and then collaboratively by, hey, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. And so as a as a, as a Christian, as a church member, I don't have to now start my own nonprofit. I can recognize there are other great ministries and, and nonprofit organizations around the community that, hey, we can work with to tackle this together. And, and then just being motivated by the gospel, just recognizing that, you know, in the same love we've received, we want to extend that to the, the world around us. Well, I appreciate that. And I'll, I'll let Mike get the last word if he wants to. Um, we didn't warn you guys, but at the end, one of you has to, we're going to set you up to say, let the bird fly. So. I don't know who's going to do that. but uh, So Mike will set that up. But I, Mike, hopefully also, because I'll forget, 
We're going to get information for any links that we want to have in the show notes that you guys would be help think would be helpful. Obviously, the book. Um, let my people go. Dot. It's. LMPG, like let my people go, lmpgnetwork.org. Oh, so lmpgnetwork.org. Um, we'll get the book link, but anything else you guys think would be helpful, we'll be sure to get to Peter to get in the show notes, and I guess I'll let you wrap up, Mike. Well, thank you very much for uh, coming here. It's uh, obviously a huge issue that just is in the news, and it's just so um, it's inspiring to hear that you guys are do, doing this and, and tackling this uh, very difficult uh, thing. But what's even more impressive is that you've that you've clearly said this is I'm free, right? Because of, of the gospel, I'm free um, to be not curved inward, but to be curved outward. And as you said, now I see my neighbor. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden I saw my neighbor uh, when I'm curved outward. And that's true freedom. And so uh, whatever it is uh, that you do, dear listener, um, you know, be curved outward and uh, find your neighbor and realize that that's a gift that God has given you. Uh, the first the freedom but then also that neighbor you have a divine purpose in whatever vocation you are and so we are gospel motivated because we know that after everything is done for us there's nothing left to do but let the bird fly uh, every evening when the sun goes down get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk I'm just a tanker I set him up another round. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. One more round won't get me down. Don't care what the people are saying.